episode 38 of Running Matters. My name's Matt North. I'm joined with my co-host, Hattie. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Long run Sunday. Yeah. Been out for a 30k. What about you? Beautiful day. Yep. I did the Sutherland Surf this morning with, with Indy and uh, yeah, top morning out. How'd you guys go? Yep. We, we, we did a... She was really happy with her longest run because it's 11 Ks and she ran 61 minutes, so she was very pleased. It's a cracking time, yeah. Indy. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, so she, she did really well. Our special guest today is Pat Farmer. Pat, thanks very much for coming in and giving up your time. Mate, absolute pleasure to be here. Good to see you, Matt. Good to see you, Hattie. Before we get into it, I'd like to thank our partners, Ranella, Filter Brewing, Goo Energy, Guy Me Allied Health, Surf Coast Century and Fractal Running Caps. Uh, I'd also like to thank Jimmy Carroll for doing the editing behind the scenes. You're doing a great job, Jimmy. So, Pat, how are the knees after all this running? Yeah, amazingly uh, pretty good. You know, I think um, I think experienced uh, ultra runners learn early in the piece that you need to have a low leg action uh, and, um, you know, economy movement it will give you longevity in your career. So... You know, I learned in the early days from Cliffy Young, you know, many, many years ago, although I couldn't run like him, uh, I learned that he was very economical in the way that he ran. And as a result of that, he was able to still run well and truly onto his his later years and his 60s and 70s and, and still, um, uh, still be able to compete and be relatively quick. But because he had a low leg action, he didn't have the same impact on the ground that a lot of the shorter, faster runners get. And that's why the shorter, faster runners, you know, your 800-metre runners, your 10,000-metre your, um, uh, runners, uh, even up to... up. Uh, you know, even up to the half marathon and, and, and uh, yeah, even up to the half marathon, you know, they just don't last into their later years. You see marathon runners, they really start to hit their peak in their 40, 45s, and they're still very competitive right up until 60s and even some of the guys into their 70s, mm. you know, and that's why. Mm. Yeah. Good. And by low leg action, you mean not a high knee lift, Pat? Yeah, yeah, not a high a high knee lift. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, so it's it's funny because you will watch a cyclist and uh, a successful cyclist. I hope you crack one of those beers for me, fellas. Absolutely. <laughs> but but um, those cyclists, um, cheers. But those cyclists uh, have got big backsides, big ass, yeah. uh, and that's their power unit. You know, it's one of the biggest muscles in your body, your butt, and, and you know, they're, they're pushing all their force out of there, whereas uh, um, and they're out of their glutes, whereas in our case, you know, it's more around the front side of your legs, and so this is why we end up with, uh, you know, smaller smaller backsides, but f- big, heavy thighs, big, mm. big thighs, because we're doing all the lifting from there. So you're still running today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I ran 20 kilometres this morning on Maroubra Beach. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I'm up at I'm up and on the beach at 5 a.m. It's bloody cold on the mm. sand too, by the way, uh, icy cold. So and I've been running bare feet on the sand, and so the sand is you know truly icy cold. I got out of there today. I finished so so I do 20k, so roughly around two hours. And then, uh, and then I live close to the beach at Maroubra, so I went and had a, a shower straight away. And I just kept the warm water on my feet for ages this morning to try and thaw them out. And it reminded me, it gave me glimpses of when I was, when I was in the South Pole and I finished at the South Pole. And uh, I was welcomed into the tent there, which was the base at the South Pole, by a couple of the nurses that were down there looking after the, uh, the explorers. Uh, and... Um, they put my hands into a, a 
a basin of hot water in my, and took my boots off and put my feet into a basin of hot water and I couldn't feel my feet for a good 20 minutes before wow. I started to get the feeling back into there. But when you're out there and you're doing it, you don't even realise. Yeah. But as soon as you go to slow down, it hits you like a ton of bricks and, and such a pain, that extreme cold. Mm-hmm. Oh, really bad. I, um, I was chatting to Eloise Wellings this morning at the start. Oh, great. And uh, I mentioned that we we're going to have a chat today. And she said that you're actually going to do a run for her. You uh, bet I am. Across Uganda. Well, two runs, actually, because um, I've organised the Soft Sand Beach Run, which is a run that I, I put on for Father Chris Riley's Youth Off the Streets a couple of years ago and raised money for them back then. Uh, and uh, what what that is is basically a five kilometre run, a ten kilometre run, a half marathon, a marathon, uh, and a marathon teams where there'll be ten teams, four runners, and each runner has to do a minimum of ten kilometres, and then they can select who who wants to finish it off. But I've got some of the surf life saving clubs, and also Special Forces Australia um, are going to put a team in there as well. And it's interesting because the special forces through the army are working very closely with the Australian, with the AIS now, and our top Australian athletes. We have a program uh, where they are trying to teach them to be able to to um, not lose their cool under fire or under pressure, and to be able to take on that pressure and uh, and to turn it round. Uh, and get their best performances because so many of our top athletes, you know, they train so hard and so well for two years for the World Championships and four years for the Olympics and they get there and often, you know, comes down to a split second and they just blow it at the last moment because they've, they've, they've gone to pieces. So mm-hmm. I, I'm hopeful that that program will turn a lot of, uh, a lot of champions into gold medalists uh, after it's over. So anyway, so along those lines, so we've got that event which is a fundraiser for the Love Mercy Foundation, which is the, the charity that Eloise started up with uh, Julius Aishon, a wonderful, wonderful gold medalist from Uganda. Uh, and um, then uh, after that, then I come into my own, uh, not so much as an organiser, but as a runner, and I've organised this run uh, for 500 kilometres across Uganda, starting at uh, Entebbe, the capital, and I'll finish up in Lira, which is where they do most of their work there with the Love Mercy Foundation, providing seed loans to women in the communities there and education on how to harvest the seeds, uh, how to grow crops, harvest the, harvest the crops, and then turn that into a cash commodity to be able to send their kids for an education, to be able to put food on their table, a roof over their heads, and to empower them. So um, they do incredible work, and it's a wonderful thing to see set up by athletes uh, for the needy and the and the, mo- the poorest of some of the people on on earth. You know, mm-hmm. it's really fantastic. So my goal is to raise one hundred thousand dollars in that, uh, and um, you know, break it all down. I'm going to have five runners. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, we will have a couple of good runners. Steve Monaghetti is one of those very good runners. Familiar <laughs> <laughs> with that name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just okay. So Steve's, yeah. Steve's agreed to run it with me, and so I'll run it. My, uh, Steve will run it. We'll have Julius will will run uh, portions of it with us, uh, and then we're going to get a couple of corporate runners, uh, and we're each going to raise twenty thousand dollars. So between the five of us, we'll have a uh, hundred thousand dollars for the charity. Uh, and then, as a consequence, we'll get out there and we'll run in relay the full 500 kilometres together. And we, so 100k a day, five days, and 
it's easy. Piece of cake. Piece of cake. And well, it is a piece of cake, yeah. really. I mean, and, and how great is it to be able to run with Olympic champions like that and to be able to run with Steve? Like, I've done a few training runs with him because both he and I are on the, the Australian Sports Commission board together. And, um, you know, it's just it's just such a privilege to be able to run with people like that. They're so full of knowledge and and so, uh, you know, just 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 wonderful, wonderful athletes in their own right. Oh, uh, I didn't mention, too, I got my first corporate runner on the other day, and my corporate runner is John Wiley, not only the guru of finance worldwide, but also the, um, the chairman of uh, uh, Sport Australia. So John uh, was bragging how he had just done a marathon up in the Netherlands mm. uh, in 24-hour uh, sunlight up there. And okay. he, he ran around, or oh, under four hours anyway, for the marathon. So he did run so, Yeah, he did. He yeah. did. And he came out on a few training runs with us, and he was fantastic. And he's good value too, John. But uh, I said to him about this run, and he said, sign me up. So it's fantastic, yeah. Well, he should be able to knock out the 20 grand pretty easy, Pat. You know? <laughs> it fell out of his back pocket yeah, while he was yeah, talking right. to me. <laughs> <laughs> He's done. It was a small change for him. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> so when's this event? So that event is on in uh, November. So I, I, you know, I look forward to actually talking to you guys while I'm over in Uganda and send you some messages back. And we might do a bit of a, a, a podcast. Stream. Uh, yeah, yeah, stream from uh, Uganda back to Australia and then out to all of your listeners. It would yeah. be brilliant. And, of course, uh, Steve Steve, and the rest of the runners will be more than happy to tell you about their experiences. Yeah. Oh, no, that sounds great. Amazing. Yeah, perfect. Well, I like to went to Africa. That's the last bastion for Running Matters podcast. Yeah, that's right. I think we're everywhere else, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. And, of course, they turn out such such incredible athletes oh. out of that area. You know, they they're downtrodden and they're uh, all they've got in their life a lot of the time is the ability to run and and that's how Julius Aishon took himself out of the hmm. the depths of despair and poverty uh, through to being a, a a world leader in his sport but also a, a world leader in humanity yeah, community leader definitely yeah amazing bloke so you're a multiple world record holder for endurance running you've run from the north pole to the south pole the length of india and Vietnam, through the Middle East, across and around Australia and across America. You've served eight years as Member of Parliament. Uh, you've been awarded the Order of Australia uh, for contributing to ultramarathon running, politics and charitable work. You're the re- winner of Achiever of the Year 2000, awarded by Prime Minister John Howard, and National Geographic's Adventure of the Year 2012. You've raised millions of dollars for causes during your 30-year running career, including Lifeline, Cancer Council Australia, Red Cross, Diabetes Australia, and the Nanny Kelly Foundation. And you've been inspired by Cliffy Young, who was 61 at the time when he won his first uh, 83 Sydney to Melbourne uh, Ultra, back when you were just 18 years old. Um, so we'll talk more about this. Yeah, I actually yeah, want yeah. to concentrate a bit on that race during this interview. Um, since then, you've accomplished some of the greatest feats on earth. In 2011 and 12, you ran over 20,000 kilometres from the North Pole to the South Pole through Canada, America, Central America, and South America, taking 10 months. Uh, you ran every day, averaging 80 kilometres a day. You've broken world records and created some of your own. In 2016, you ran 4,400 kilometres in 65 days um, in your Spirit of India run to raise awareness of the beauty of India and its people to raise 
funds for the, the Nanny Kelly Foundation. The Middle East run in 2014 encompassed Lebanon, Jordan, Israel and Palestine. Uh, it was a distance of approximately 1,450 kilometres in 19 days. Uh, and the purpose of this endurance run was to raise funds, uh, was not to raise funds, but to create awareness of the desire for peace in these nations. Yep. And yet another monumental achievement, um, 40th anniversary of the friendship agreement between Australia and Vietnam in 2012-2013. You ran the length of Vietnam, distance of 3,200 kilometres. In 2006, you revisited your 24-hour vertical climbing record, raising over half a million dollars for the Millennium Foundation's Ovarian Cancer Research Program at Westmead Hospital. Uh, you first completed the climb in 98, becoming the first person to run 24 hours vertically, climbing both up and down Sydney Tower, which was described as running Mount Everest in 24 hours. Yeah, that was 101,939 stairs in 24 hours. <laughs> you so know, I remember every one of them. <laughs> You'd know that well. In 99, you established the fastest around Australia record of continuous running in 191 days, around six months over 14,000 kilometres during your Centenary of Federation run. Um, also during that run, you set a new world 10,000 kilometre record in 129 days. Uh, you broke a long-standing Australian record of more than 13,300 kilometres in 174 days. Uh, you set a total of 10 international records, including the Western Australia border-to-border run, the Brisbane to Darwin run and the world record for the longest tropics run, which was 6,300 kilometres in 83 days. I'm getting through this, don't worry. In 93... I'm falling off the sleep. Yeah, yeah. In 93, a virtually unknown, you secured second place in your first attempt at the Trans-America Road Race, 4,700 kilometres from Huntington Beach, California to New York and you averaged 80 kilometres per day for 64 days. Uh, you're the two-time record holder for crossing the Simpson Desert and ranked third in the world for the 1,000 miles on a track. Going to talk about that later too. You also ran 2,500 kilometres around New South Wales for charity in 42 consecutive days, as well as numerous international and national ultra marathons, including the first 1,000-mile track race in Australia. Uh, the second of its kind anywhere in the world. So uh, it's quite the introduction. It is, mate. I'm, I'm fatigued. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to ask a question. You better ask a question. So, Pat, what, what is it about your body that allows you to cover those incredible distances where even in the niche sport of ultra running, 100Ks is considered to be a massive achievement? Well, 100Ks is a massive achievement and, um, you know, nobody knows that better than me because... Look, you're only as good as the last run that you did. And, and you know, I, I was going through a, a time in my life years ago when I was just competing an incredible amount uh, anywhere and everywhere and just doing lots of races, lots of runs. Uh, and, you know, I, I was I was at my peak, but it, I had to work bloody hard for it. You know, I had to... You, you can never never just rest on your reputation and just sit back and say oh well you know I achieved this so I'll go out my next run and I'll I'll hit it again I think that's what makes runners so down to earth is that you it doesn't matter how good you are you have to work for every single bloody step that you put in and and uh, you know it, it is it is hard work and the weather conditions are always different I remember going over Singapore for the 100k world championships and uh 
um, was it world champ? No, it wasn't a world championship. Put a hundred k race over there, and um, you know I was going into that as the favourite, and I thought I had Don Toast, a pretty flat course, but um, it was just so incredibly humid. I, it it wiped me out. You know, I got I always get the job done, but but um, you know you don't win every race that you go into, and if you think that you're going to, then you're a fool because. You know, Mother Nature, the other competitors, even even the demons within yourself are thrown at you every single time that you get out there and you hit the tarmac mm. or the dirt. And so, um, you know, so consequently I find running a very humbling experience and it's when I feel closest to God and closest to the earth. And and um, But but that's what I get out of it, you know, a, a, a connection to my inner self and a connection to this planet, to the earth that I run on. And, uh, you know, I feel good about that. And I, I leave behind all the normal worries of the city life or the jobs that we all worry about so often and, and so much. And you can just discover what being a human being is really all about. Mm. In fact, um, just touching on that, when I ran around Australia for our Centenary Federation, I'll never forget running into Pat Dodson's arms, one of the great Aboriginal leaders, and he was up in uh, Broome at the time. My hair was wiry, my skin was was burnt, I, I, you know, I was blackened from the sun, I was dusty as could be, I had dust out of my ears and my nose and everything, and I ran into his arms and collapsed at the end of an 80k day, for a, and it was a festival that they had on up there in Broome. And he put his arms around to me and he said, welcome, brother, welcome, brother. And I, I've often thought about that and I realised he said that to me because he could see in my face, in my eyes and in my appearance that I had experienced what this earth is really all about, what this land of Australia is really all about, and that is the harshness of it all. And instead of trying to fight it, instead of trying to shelter behind you know, triple glazing windows and, and still put air conditioning into your home and this and that and all the rest of it. It's about accepting the weather conditions as they are and accepting this country the way that it is. And that means sometimes there's plentiful food around and other times there's droughts and there's floods and there's all sorts of different things. But it's about accepting all those conditions uh, but being relentless, being relentless in your pursuit to finish what you've started and to push on through it. And so when you accept those conditions, those weather conditions, instead of complaining about how damn hot it is or how cold it is or how, how wet it is or whatever, then, then you find that you're able to blend in with the, with the weather, with the climate, and you're able to just get on with the job. Mm. And a lot of people spend their whole lives trying to live a life without, without pain, without, uh, without uh, discomfort, um, and they try and create all these creature comforts while they're in a race or while they're on the road. And the bottom line is, it's just not like that. You know, Tony Rafferty, one of my, my a great mentor of mine, said to me many, many years ago with the old Sydney to Melbourne race, he said, Pat, pain is normal and natural in these events. You have to accept it as part of the event and push on regardless. And it's so true. Yeah, I read in the book, um, yeah, he, he taught you about uh, accepting the elements as you just discussed the sun the wind the rain rather than fighting them yeah so how how do you embrace these when you're out there and, and suffering whether it's a, the humidity whether it's the rain how, how do you accept well it sounds you know you know Aussie term sounds a bit wanky but uh, you know to be honest with you uh, it's about letting the wind blow through you letting the sun you know uh, 
touch you without without scorching you. Uh, and and it, like I said, it sounds a little fanciful, you know what I'm trying to say there, and letting letting the rain just just fall on your face without without fear of 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 being soaked to the skin, you know. Uh, it sounds fanciful, but you look at people and the way that they adapt right around this planet, and you'll see people in, in the Nepalese in in some of these most freezing conditions, and they're walking in bare feet on ice, mm. uh, and you think to yourself. That's impossible. How could they possibly do that? And I've I've been fortunate enough to be the four corners of this world, uh, and have run in different places and seen with my own eyes how the human body adapts. And then, sort of <clears throat> along those lines, if you look at the science of it all, I'll never forget Dick Telford telling me many years ago how. The human body takes about two weeks to adapt to its climate. So basically, what happens is, if it's a very hot climate, the veins in your the veins in your body will move to the outer layers of skin, so that you get a cooling effect as the air passes over the top of the skin, uh, and that cools the blood and keeps your body temperature down. So too, when you're in extremely cold conditions, and you will see this with all the the Inuit people up in uh, up in Canada and Alaska, and uh, in some of the most uh, the coldest places of the world, you won't be able to see the veins in the bodies on those people with the naked eye. Uh, the veins are there, but they go down below a layer of fat tissue. Uh, and that creates an insulation for the blood and keeps the so they can <clears throat> they can survive in those <coughs> conditions all right. And the the most amazing thing about all of that, and I've seen through my own studies and my own work with the CSIRO, with the Institute of Sport, and like I said, with wonderful sports scientists like uh, like um, uh, Martin Thompson and Dick Telford, that. Your body does adapt, and my own body uh, adapts to those conditions, and my veins will go lower lower down into my body uh, and be covered by that layer of fat within a two-week period. And so, too, if I'm running in extreme hot conditions, they will move to the outer layers and, they'll, and I'll get that cooling effect from them. So knowing and understanding and having faith in yourself that your body will adapt if you just hang in there long enough and you believe in yourself, that gives you the mental capacity to be able to push through almost anything. You are talking before that uh, you had a phone call from a friend of yours that's over from the States at the moment, and she's running from Darwin to Adelaide. Yeah, Katie Visco. Uh, I, I just want to uh, shout out to Katie. Katie's an amazing girl. Katie has done the race across America, so she's run across America, and she's run all over the world. She's famous for her... Um, her uh, protein balls that she she creates and sells um, out of her own kitchen. She sells those all around the world uh, to to runners and to athletes, and then she uses the money from that to fund these sorts of trips. So she's long had this desire to come to Australia and try and run across Australia. And I've been working with her off and on for a couple of years now, uh, and um, we're working on different routes that she might take. But she's decided to take with her husband. Uh, to take the route from uh, Darwin uh, down to Adelaide, straight down the centre of Australia. Uh, and all of us here in Australia, we know that's a long, lonely stretch of, stretch of road. Uh, so, you know, I want to encourage as many of the people listening to this podcast to uh, go check her out and send her your best wishes and, and let her know that you're tapping in to see how she's doing and you're encouraging her. So it's katievisco.com. So that's Katie, 
Visco, V-I-S-C-O, and uh, she's just a wonderful young girl. And I love that adventure spirit in, in, you know, all people around the world, you know, and that's what I get out of ultra running. So ultra running, you, you, it's a real mind over matter, isn't it? You, you, you're running against yourself in the end. Um, yourself is what slows you down. Yourself yeah. is what stops you. It's not the competition uh, that, that stops you from competing. How, how do you keep yourself going in those difficult times? You, you mentioned about Katie um, just being a bit struck by the, the bleakness of the country. There's just nothing around. Uh, which just makes for lonely running. What did you encompass to to keep yourself going? Well, you know, um, Giannis Kuras said to me a long time ago, he said to me, Pat, and of course Yanni was uh, the famous Greek runner that won the Spartathlon, and Yanni and I became great friends. He was competing in the Sydney to Melbourne races, and he became another mentor for me. Uh, and you know he in the early days he used to beat all of the other runners from all over the world great runners like Ziggy Bauer Roman Zabalo from uh, from France uh, um, uh, Dujon Mirable from Slovenia of course uh, Joe Record Tony Rafferty from Australia and uh, so many others he used to beat all of those including myself or well definitely myself by more than a 24 hour period mm. uh, um, day in day out and he did that because he would set himself a plan of what he needed to do and he would stick to that plan. Now, the interesting thing about the old Sydney to Melbourne races before then was if you just finished that race, then you would finish up the top of the field because the, the natural attrition of that race was enormous. Most people didn't finish because it was the gun would go off from – Parramatta Westfields and would you'd finish at Westfield in Doncaster and I mentioned Westfield because they were the major sponsors of the event in those days uh, and um, when you uh, when you got to the end then you were the you were the winner or you were you were placed in that position but most races these days are in stages so you just complete a day and you get to rest overnight in that event you also had to have the ability to go without sleep and Yanni was um very very strong in the mind and he had this ability to run i'll never forget the first run he did he went 54 hours without resting at all 54 hours without a blink without any sleep and then when he got to the end of the 54 hours his crew grabbed him they put him in an auto bin full of ice water up to his hips up to his hips and i can still hear his he's yelling because i was crewing for Eleanor adams at the time and he was he was yelling because of the pain that he was in. And then they lifted him out of that. They put a blanket over him and they lay him down inside the support vehicle on the side of the road. And he rested for 20 minutes. Then he got up and did the same again. And, and he, <laughs> he was an absolute, absolute machine, an absolute machine. You know, but that was the power of his mind. Yeah. And that was his ability. You know, so... Um, Anyway, as time went on, the Australian runners tapped into a lot of this, and they realised that you couldn't just you couldn't just jog the Sydney to Melbourne any longer. You couldn't just run in the Sydney to Melbourne and hope to do well. You actually had to train hard. You had to lift your game. You had to do circuit work. You had to do fart leg training, interval training. You needed to do gym work. You needed to really up your game and become an athlete. 
And so, uh, you know, the Australian athletes were born out of that. The Australian ultra-athletes were born out of that experience and they really started to lift their game. Then you got the Kevin Mansells, Mark Labels uh, um, came along on the scene. Of course, uh, um, uh, Brian Smith, one of the greatest uh, Australian uh, distance runners, uh, um, you know, came on the scene and they started serving it up to Giannis. Yep. So... You uh, you got hooked on on the the, the Sydney to, to Melbourne marathons. You mm-hmm. you're, you're a mechanic by trade, and yep. you, you did your apprenticeship with Laurie Archer at Cumberland Cabs at Granville. Yeah. Uh, in '84, the uh, the first Sydney to Melbourne, uh, it was in in reverse in that year. Uh, went past your workplace, and you watched the winner Jeff Molloy run past. Was that the moment when you wanted to be an ultra runner? Yeah, without a doubt. You know, uh, but but for very simplistic. Um, reasons at the time I had been always been seen as a failure in my life I was only a kid still you know but I was a failure at school I was wasn't particularly bright spent most of my time uh, in the corridors of the, of the classrooms after I got kicked out of class for being a smart aleck rather than um, rather than being a grade A student I I'll never forget my father saying to me, "Look, Pat, we haven't got the money, and we, and quite frankly, you haven't got the brains to go on to years eleven and twelve. Uh, well, fifth and sixth form was called in those days, so he said you better get out and try and get yourself a trade, uh, and that's exactly what I did. And I, I got an apprenticeship as a motor mechanic, and I started at the bottom and just worked through all of that. But I always craved more in my life. I wanted to be something, somebody, but. I didn't feel like I had the academics to be able to um, to be able to achieve anything great. And then the funny thing is, through running, it's led me on to so many other different things where where I've I've gotten the academics and since done a you know masters of business and so many other different things. But but I'll never forget you know looking at these runners as they ran past where I stood on the side of the road and thinking to myself, you know, they just look like ordinary people. If they can do that, then maybe I can do that. And I remember all the fanfare around the Sydney to Melbourne race in its early days. It was $10,000 prize money the first year that Cliffy won it. And that was a lot of money back in those days. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, then there was other prizes right down the 10th place. But there was also the esteem of being on TV. TV was the greatest medium in those days. And, and, it was. It made. It was really a, a trip to stardom. It was like going on The Voice and winning The Voice. If, you, if, you, if you're a singer, honestly, yeah. for a runner, yeah, yeah. honestly, because it was the pinnacle of that. You know, yeah. or going in Ninja Warriors and winning Ninja Warriors. You We're know, not allowed it, to talk about Ninja Warriors. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. But well, any any of those things to that level. Yeah. So, so you know, so I thought. But they don't. They just look ordinary. So I figured if they can do that, I can do it. And I'll never forget. I went home that day. I put a couple of bricks into a backpack and I started running with some bricks in the backpack. That day? Uh, that yeah, day. yeah, yeah, that day. You, that would, you would have been 16? Yeah, I was running around the football field down the bottom of my street, Baronia Street of Granville, and, and, and I was so inspired. And this is what I say to everybody now. I speak at schools all the time. I speak big, big business all the time. do a lot of corporate public speaking. And one of the points I try and get through to everybody is that the best way to influence people is through your actions, not your words. I've been in Parliament, I've listened to the most eloquent speakers on the face of this planet, and they'll string together words like poetry. But at the end of the day, um, you know, 
it's person's actions that really draw you into action as well. And I saw, because I stood on the side of the road, those guys didn't even know I existed, but I saw what they were doing. And I, I saw there and then that if they could do that by just putting one foot in front of the other, I could too. And that's what inspired me the most. That's, it was those, their efforts and then listening to them day after day after day on the radio and watching on TV and thinking, they're still going, they're still going, they're still going. I'd go to bed, have dinner, you know, have a shower, have a bath or whatever, get up the next day, go to work, and they were still going. And I'm thinking, my God, you know, these guys are still going. And I just grew in admiration for them as they went on and on and on. And then, of course, I tried and I failed and tried and failed. You know, it was, um, it was a while afterwards before I actually qualified for the Sydney to Melbourne race. In those days, we used to have all sorts of qualifiers, like a run from Melbourne to Colac via the Great Ocean Road, which is about, I think it was about 230 kilometres, and you had to do that in 24 hours. And, and, and uh. there's a big, big climb out of lawn that we had to do, I think it goes for about 11 kilometres up to Dean's Marsh. Um, you know, in that particular race, that was a qualifier. There was qualifiers all around the nation. So what sprung from the Sydney to Melbourne race was a whole lot of other ultra races that were used as qualifiers for that. And that's why the sport really took off in those days. One of your first qualifiers you did at Pagewood Oval in, 80, in October in 84. Tell us about your first yeah, 24 yeah. hour on the track. <laughs> now, if you want to know somebody who knows absolutely nothing about it, this is a typical example. You know, I got out there, I convinced my crew, uh, which were my family and my friends, to come and crew for me on the side of the athletic oval uh, at Henley Oval at Botany Bay. Uh, and so I, I, you know, it was one of the qualifiers, and you had to run 160 kilometres in 24 hours to qualify for the Sydney to Melbourne race. And they were the days when nobody was running, you know, hardly anybody was running 160 k's uh, in that in that period of time. But that was how tough it was. So I went in there not knowing anything about it. I ran around the football field down the bottom of my, my street a few times and run from my place uh, into Granville Shopping Centre, which was about three kilometres away and back, and I thought I'd done a lot of training. (laughs) (laughs) I got into the race. I got into the race after convincing my family and friends, uh, and I started running around the track, and I was flying around the track because I thought, I'll knock over this 160 k's fast. I'll go home, have my dinner, have a bath, and then I'll come back the next day and I'll pick up my trophy (laughs) and and whatever else comes with it, uh, and everything will be good. So I went out there with that stupid attitude, and I lapped the field uh, at the start, and I was in the lead for about the first three or four or five hours. And I was getting used to seeing my name on the leaders board and I felt fantastic and I thought this is brilliant. And then after about five hours, I started to sway a little bit and started to fall to the outside lanes of the track. And my brother Bernie came over to the side of the track. He said, Pat, what's the matter? He said, you're slowing down. What's what's going on? I said, Bernie, I don't know. I said, I'm in a world of pain and my head is just spinning. I said, I can't think straight and I'm going sideways rather than forwards. And he said, well, what's, what, what do you think it is? I said, I don't know, mate. And he said, well, well you must have some idea. What is, what's going on? 
I said, I don't know, but I said, I've been watching the other runners. They've actually been drinking something and having something to eat. <laughs> Maybe I should have a drink after five hours of running. <laughs> oh, so then he said, you know, he was as, as, as unknowledgeable as myself. And he said, well, what do you want? I said, I don't know. I can't think straight. I said, get me a can of Coke and a hamburger. So he went across to the Westfields, which is just across the road there. He grabbed me this great big triple decker hamburger, a can of Coke, comes racing across the road, and by this time I'd walked through, staggered around about another two laps, come to the outside lane of the track where you're allowed to take aid, and Bernie gave me the can of Coke. I threw this can of Coke back, and I woofed down this hamburger. I was so hungry and so thirsty. It was just amazing. And all of a sudden, my head, my eyes opened up like headlights on a car, and I felt fantastic. And I took off again. I thought, I'm back, you know. this That's all I needed. I ran around a lap. I lapped everybody again. <laughs> and then I come around for the second lap, and everything that went down started to come back up again. And I fell onto all fours in the center of the track and just vomited everywhere made an absolute idiot of myself all the other runners were jumping over the top of me <laughs> cursing and carrying on what a clown I was and I shouldn't even be in this race I was disgraced and I was mocking them by the way I was running and the way I was carrying on I was an idiot and I was I was all of the above and but I got I, I remember the race officials dragged me to the edge of the track and left me there by my ankles and I, I just lay there for about another half hour and then Bernie came along with a bucket of ice and tipped it over my head. He said, Have you had enough now? Can we go home? <laughs> <laughs> and I said and I said and I said no, 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 I've got to finish this thing. And I got up and I staggered around the track with the limited knowledge that I had. At the end of that, uh, the gun went off the next morning, 10 a.m. the next morning at the end of the 24 hours, and I had done 124 kilometres, uh, and I collapsed. St John's Ambulance came over, put intravenous in my arm, I'm lying on a stretcher, and everybody's cursing and carrying on about what a, what a goose I was for the way I ran and uh, for even being in that race with them. And then one guy came up to me, his name was Mike Agostini, he was the race oh, organiser, uh, and he's an ex-Olympic runner from Trinidad, yeah. and Mike used to organise the race in those days. And Mike came up to me and he said, Pat, he said, um, your sister told me, because uh, you had your family, uh, you had people doing lap scoring for you, you had to have your own lap scorers. Your sister told me during the night that she, um, that, that you've never run a race before in your life. Is that true? And I said, yes. And he said, what, not a marathon? And I said, no. He said, what, not a fun run? And I said, no. He said, what about at school? I said, oh, no, they played footy and cricket. And he said, that's incredible. He said, you just ran 124 kilometres or so uh, in, uh, around this track in 24 hours and you've never run before in your life. And, and I said, yeah. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't qualify, you know. And I felt really bad. And he said to me, he knelt down beside me and he said, son, I think you've got what it takes to become a great ultramarathon runner. And that was the spark that I needed in my life, just one person coming to me in my life, whether it be at school, whether it be at work, mm. whether it be in whatever form in my life, yeah. just to give me some positive reinforcement. Yeah. And it, from that moment on, it was like a bell went off in my in my head and this was what I was going to be. Yeah. And I tried and failed and tried and failed, but I never lost sight of, of reassuring that man that he was correct. Yeah. Mm. And that's why I've achieved all the things that I have because 
One, because of what Cliff Young did and what Jeff Malloy did and what all those people before me did, and also because of that one moment of reassurance. And I say to all of you listeners out there, um, forget about all the negativity that's around the world, people not achieving PBs or not doing their best or whatever. You give somebody a bit of positive reinforcement at the moment when they're most vulnerable and you can change their lives. Hmm. So a couple of things. Mike ended up giving you a job to support your yeah. running and he also set you up to um, support Eleanor Adams that year or the following year, the yeah. 85, um, uh, the Sydney Sydney to Melbourne. So you end up crewing for her and that year, that 85, because you didn't qualify, you did 124 yeah, on that's the right. track, yeah. you yep. need didn't to do 160. Yep. So he thought that you get a lot of experience by crewing on the course. It was the best thing. Yeah, and you did that for Eleanor. But that year... Uh, the leader, he was um, Kirkman, 35-year-old. Yeah. He was hit by a car, yeah. knocked 12 metres into a gully, and you would have had to have driven yeah, we past, past the side. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, of course, it was, you know, it's one of the reasons why that race isn't on any longer because it, it was an incredibly dangerous race because in the early days it took the same pathways as many of the, many of the big double uh, B trucks. Uh, and overnight, because it went day and night, overnight it was difficult for the truck drivers to know where they were. There wasn't the same prevalence around uh, athletes and people being on the road as what there is now. And so consequently, you know, this car came over the top, uh, over the, top of the road. All of a sudden, uh, this truck came over the top of the road. Uh, another one was coming in the other direction and uh, the truck went to, to, to miss the support vehicle and uh, ended up um, collecting it anyway and knocking him off and knocking him off on, onto the side of the road. So it was, there was those sorts of accidents that, that were happening all the time. But I was privileged that year to be with Eleanor Adams. And Eleanor Adams not only won the women's section, but I think from memory she came in about third overall. Seventh. Or, 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 was it seventh? Yeah, seventh. So she, she finished within the top ten. She beat most of the men in the race. Uh, and um, the funny thing was the prize money for her as the first woman was less than what it would have been uh, in seventh place overall, and she was really kicking up a stink about that at the time. So she was like a trailblazer as far as equal rights were concerned for women athletes, and I was privileged to be crewing for her and looking after her during the course of that run, and I learned so much about her stubbornness, her dogged determination, uh, and her ability, her ability to push on through pain, uh, and um, you know she was a wonderful, wonderful mentor for me. And I went on to be become great friends with her and crewed for her in other events, and and ended up running against her in other and some other events. And she's always she's always been a great supporter of me ever since. And you know, so I think um, surrounding yourself with the right people really makes a huge difference to your career. Uh, and, you know, once again, I say to everybody uh, that that having that experience of being actually on the road and seeing what the athletes go through, and they were true athletes, they were tough as nails and they gave the absolute best and their body was uh, crying out for rest. I found, in, I found with my own experiences in later years that, you know, uh, I used to think back to those uh, funny cartoons where Bugs Bunny or Donald Duck or something would have these or uh, would have these toothpicks under their eyelids yeah. to try and try and stop them from their eyelids from shutting when they were really really tired. And I used to think to myself about that all the time uh, well, because were you having caffeine? Were you having? Yeah. 
No, we didn't know any of the stuff in those days, especially the Australian runners. We were we were quite naive about it. The sports science hadn't kicked into our realm at that point in time, yeah. and there was very few runners knew anything about uh, about you know really good nutrition and and being able to to take certain things to to look after yourself better. There was none of these things around like a V and, no, um, and a lot and, of them have no day tablets. Uh, yeah, all all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, one good thing that came out of it though was that um, some of the European runners and I won't I won't name names in 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 the later Sydney to Melbourne races actually got pulled up for taking uh, no dose and a couple of Cold things. Cold and flu tablets. Yeah, yeah, taking a couple of things. That they shouldn't have because of the because of the drugs that were within that, mm. and so um, so they got disqualified, mm. and so we we were learning from there from there from what they were doing, uh, and then you know to see it was it was sort of good in a way because the ultra scene was starting to regulate itself and we're starting to look at itself as true athletes and and bring themselves into line with our Olympians, our world champions in other sports, and, and it was a very good thing. So, of course, Aura, uh, or the Australian Ultra Runners Association, started to enforce a lot of that, and it, and it was a great thing. Uh, and consequently, you know, we started to learn what you could have, what you couldn't have, and, and how you went about things. So, you know, uh, it, it, you know, it just made a big difference. And then we all started to dive into what was good nutrition because like I say and as you as you heard there in the early days everybody thought a can of coke was a good thing for you and uh, uh, you so know and, and, a, and a hamburger fun. halfway through a race well what I'm saying is that is that <laughs> see people will have watered down sugary drinks uh, down towards the later stages of a marathon or something like that because they're getting that boost from the sugar and it's mainly a brain boost to stop their mind for their, their brain from what they call bonking uh, and um, I know that's used in other terms but in this case in this case we'll refer to just the way it affects the brain program yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry kids <laughs> but uh, but uh, but 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 realistically, yeah, yeah, to stop their 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 brain from fatiguing from the lack of sugar. So, you know, people will take those sorts of things. But if you look after your nutrition, like small amounts of the right things all the way through, your both your your carbohydrates and your electrolytes, then you don't have those problems in the later stages of an event. So you're not craving the jelly beans and you're not craving the the, 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 the simple sugars. Yeah. But I will say I will say this on that front. Many of the races that I do, because I'm so disciplined during the course of the event, uh, during in the event, the one thing I crave is not the sugary drinks or not the isotonic drinks, the salty drinks and that sort of thing uh, after I've finished an event. I really crave a beer or a milkshake, and I crave a beer or a milkshake because a beer because of the bitter taste, the bitterness of it, it's just a completely different taste to you know any of your uh, any of your isotonic drinks that you would take yeah Gatorades and Powerades and Staminades and all those sorts of different things Uh, um, and secondly as far as the milkshake goes you can't really have a milkshake during an event because it just messes up your stomach too much and you and you will be sick but but after an event your body is craving the fat content Mm. and once again because because it's a heavier drink and and because it tastes completely different to any of those other drinks that you would have during an event uh it's just such a relief and it's so nice so so i always crave a chocolate milkshake or a beer at the end of an event i'm glad you've uh, this is a good segue i'm glad you brought up beer because 
Would you like another one? Are you enjoying the filter? I'm just, one's enough for me because I have to drive after this. But uh, I, but, but I am, but I am, but I am enjoying it very right, much. What about you, Hattie? It's, it's yeah, a good yeah, drive. Yeah. I, I could go another one. Another filter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they they, they we'll do one. taste good and bitter. So well, while we're talking <laughs> about beer, one of the uh, one of the international runners, uh, a Yugoslavian. Dusan Dusan Maravle, yes, I know and, Dusan very yeah. well. So he was uh, he was quite he was he had his own secret diet. Speaking of nutrition, yeah. and uh, he'd have eight to ten stubbies each day yeah. during the run while he was running. Yeah, and not only that, he'd win. Yeah, I know. So, he was he, was, he well. Uh, do, what? But what you left out is Dusan was also a soldier. Uh, he was a soldier with the Slovenian army, and he's very disciplined and very. He was a real hard nut, very tough runner. Plus, he was a great looking athlete. You know, he he his legs finished where my head starts. You know, like he's he's tall. You know, I, for those people that know me, you know, I'm just a I'm just a short, ordinary little guy, uh, and that helps me with the ultras because I have a lower center of gravity, so I don't get a lot of the knee joint problems, the ankles and the the back and the neck problems that a lot of the taller runners get from a misalignment uh, um, as they're running long distances, but. Uh, um, it means that my stride is much shorter than those than those taller runners, and so they're faster, leaner, meaner, uh, in and very difficult to stay up with. So, Dijon and I have competed in many races across the world, and I, I love being in the same race as him because he's a great athlete, and he's just a he's a character to be with. And like you say, it is absolutely true. I've seen it with my own eyes. He will drink beer like we drink water in a race. Were you tempted to have a beer with him during the race, or were you not during the race? No. no, it just doesn't. You know, it doesn't work for me. No. I think. I think with all of these things, and one of the things I say to a lot of people is, whatever you're going to do in a race, that's you need to emulate that in real life. So what I'm saying there is, when you're doing a multi-day, a multi-day ultra. Because in multi-day life, a normal life, we we have solid foods. So you've actually got to train your body to take in solids uh, um, in in the races themselves. So when I say solids, I'm talking about things like apple custards. I'm talking about um, um, nuts. I'm talking about uh, dried fruits. I'm talking about bananas. Uh, you know, uh, um, things like that, as opposed to your um, your goose and your lepins and your different different things like that. I, I, you know, I know. You you guys are sponsors so i don't want to mention too many names but but they're all the same but they're all pretty you know they're all the same consistency yeah and they all fit into that category just like isotonic mm. drinks all fit into one category yeah. and then you've got your carbohydrate drinks will fit into another category well it's the same with though with all, all of the goose as well and so um if you're going to take goose in a race then you need to train with them as well yeah 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 so the solids as well, so like goo make the waffles, which are, you know, like a, I don't know, like a biscuit thing, you know? And yeah. so, so yeah, so we train with them and, and have them on well, the I think that, I think Yeah, I think so they're great. So you some solids as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I think they're great. Yeah. You know, for me personally, you know, I, I've, I've, I've had, uh, had cliff bars and things like that, you yeah. know? Yeah. And cliff bars are more for the adventurers, but, they've, but they have the, all, all the same things in them. Solid, uh, yeah, yeah, solid and, food. And yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a bit of solid food. And what that does is it actually prepares your stomach and the acids in your stomach for the food that is going into there mm. so the saliva and all the rest of it uh, it helps to digest the food uh, through the chewing process before it actually enters uh, into your stomach so 
Uh, when you see it, like when you understand the science behind it all, it all makes sense. Uh, but the bottom line is, for, for everybody listening, is just whatever it is that you're going to do in the race, do it in training as well. Get your body used to it in training. So if you want to stick with liquids and goos and things like that for the shorter runs, then then by all means, uh, do that in training as well. And if you're going to do that with the longer runs, then do that in training as well. But it's 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 an absolute must that you don't train, you don't change your regime on on race day mm. because you're only going to get diarrhea, you're only going to slow down, you're only going to have uh, stomach cramps and have problems as a result of that. So Good, start, but I start having eight beers a day, so yeah. I'm ready to have that race <laughs> yeah. day as well. Yeah, I wouldn't see you race That's, against Dijon. Yeah, he's a seasoned <laughs> athlete, <laughs> on, as far as drinking's concerned. I know, I know here that Dijon, he, he, um, start right he consumed... 27 beers in the first two days of his Sydney to Look, he's a freak. I mean, look, I, 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 you know, it's, people, 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 come along in, people come along in life that are eccentric and different and it works for them. But, but this is one instance where one size does not fit all. And no. I'll give you an example with that. I ran the race across America from California to New York, the Trans-American foot race. You mentioned it earlier on. First one I went in, I finished second in. Uh, And when I was running that race, that was 80 kilometres a day. It was a stage race, so 80 kilometres from the start. Everybody was starting the morning, 5 a.m., they're going to go off. We'd all start together. Uh, and then and then your times were accrued at the end of the each of the 80 Ks, and we would finish in a town. Uh, and there was this one guy in the race, uh, and, you know, his nickname was Mountain Man, and we're all familiar with a, 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 a very friendly Mountain Man that we have here in Australia as well. It's done a six-foot track and set it all up many, many times, Graham Carouge. But... Um, uh, this guy in the States was known, for, that was his nickname because he used to run the Rocky Mountains all the time. And at the end of the 80Ks, he would sit down to a two-litre tub of ice cream and a bottle of Kahlua, and he would tip the Kahlua into the vanilla ice cream and eat it like that. Now, now this only adds to the legend of, of some of these some of these lunatics that are out there. Wait, Pat, was it plain ice cream? Vanilla ice cream. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm tell, just this you can tell the missus it's quite all right. Yeah. It's for the race. Yeah, and, it's, and it was Kahlua. I'm just writing this down. Yes, I'm yes. making this to the shopping list. Kahlua, yeah. but um, yeah, it's, but but like I say, the yeah. These, this was the age, this is an age of, of certain people that were just incredibly eccentric. All of us know now that the ultra scene has become so incredibly competitive these days that you really have to start diving into the sports science side of things and, and, and every aspect of that, every aspect of that, and including the mental approach to events as well. And we have to start thinking of ourselves more as athletes and and uh, and you know at that very elite level and yeah and the space is less as mountain men uh you know and so um did he finish the race yeah he did finish the race he did finish the race Uh, he had a sensible recovery diet well, the thing—it is a lot of carbs and, and fat, and the, uh, yeah, yeah, and and the thing with that is that um, you know we had a twelve-hour cutoff, so you had to be able to do the the eighty k's in twelve hours every single day for sixty-four days across yeah, America through incredible. all sorts of weather conditions. Yeah, and whilst that seems relatively easy for a lot of ultra runners 
for a for a week or two weeks. You try doing that for sixty four days, yeah. uh, and there will be some days where you are really struggling to fit within the twelve hour cutoff. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the front of the field or in the middle of the field. If you don't make that twelve hour cutoff, if you're one second over that time, you're out of the event, and it's all gone down the tube. So. Um, it was a tough event from that point of view. Can I just ask a couple of questions about that Transamerica foot race? How, how many people were gutsy enough to, to take that on? How many people took that on? Well, there was 30 qualifiers each year in that, and they limited the field to 30 runners because of uh, police restrictions in, that, in the, that country and the different states that we ran through at the time. And they did that because they didn't want the runners spread out over too long a distance. Mm. You know, if you got some of the really fast runners were, were, were ours pardon me, hours and hours and hours ahead of the rest of the field, then that would mean that they would need marshals, you know, stretched out across a much, much longer period of time. So for that reason, they, you know, they were pretty careful with monitoring that. Yeah, and so I was having a look at the course. It runs straight through the middle of Colorado. Yeah. Assuming it's not a flat course. Oh, you're telling me. Because we went, I remember when I did it the first year, I did it, um, 60 Minutes covered the story and they actually got they that was the old days when 60 Minutes Channel 9 60 Minutes uh, from Australia had a big budget mm. <clears throat> and they flew over to Colorado to cover the story of this Australian runner who was at that stage you know up the front of the field uh, and was in this race uh, and they they you know when I went through Eagle Eagle Canyon, which is not far from the Grand Canyon, they had a helicopter and they panned across the canyon and then up over the top of the road and it was just magnificent footage, magnificent mm-hmm. shots. And then when we went, when I got into Colorado, I was running up through Vail Pass or up uh, into Vail Pass and I was going up this. Uh, Pine Ridge Road that was just as steep as could be and the 60 Minutes crew hired a, they hired a, a Harley Davidson uh, <laughs> with a sidecar and the guy was using film so none of this digital stuff in those days he was using film because he said it's a better shot mm. and he was sitting in the sidecar filming in front of me while I was running running from behind and it was um just just amazing but mm. the you know there's snow at the top of those mountains yeah. even though it was summer yeah uh, and uh there was snow all around us all through vale and through the the you know many places through colorado um but it was a, it was a magnificent race and to go through those extremes and personally i would much prefer to do a race that has hills and mountains in it and gorges and all sorts of you know it varies your stride rather than a dead flat course where you're just after the fastest possible time because in that instance it's just breakneck speed from start to finish on a dead flat course whoever's the fastest runner is going to win the race and that's all there is to it whereas you throw in a couple of hills both you've got to get up them and down hills one of the things i noticed with Giannis cruz in the early days is yanni was no good at running downhills because he had bad knees and so uh, the Australian runners woke up to this soon and they start hammering him on the downhills as we were going through Tumut and when we were going through, because they changed the route of the the, the road over, over years and we went through we went through the um, snowy mountains territories and so it was pretty mountainous there. And whilst Yanni was good on the uphills, running uphills, he was lousy on running mm-hmm. downhills. And so the Australian runners would punish him on the downhills and then make the gap on him and, and try and get ahead like that. And consequently that worked That worked as time went on. So, um, yeah, it's about sort of reading what you do best. Yeah. I'm very strong on uphills. 
and um, you know some runners are very very good on downhills and some other runners are very good on the flats. So if I was up against somebody that was a very fast runner on the flats, mm. I'd punish them on the hills as much as I could to try and weaken their stride on the flats. Perfect. Pat, you've got a, a, a massive list of achievements to get through. We don't have sort of days and days to talk about, unfortunately. But just quickly, I'll move on to 2012. So you completed what's been described as one of the greatest feats in human history when you ran from the North Pole to the South Pole. Uh, what was your inspiration for such an incredible undertaking? Well, oh, that's not an easy one because, um, you know, I'd, I, was, I was in Parliament at the time, so I'd... I'd cut a niche for myself out of the running business, uh, so much so that I started to get on the radar of people outside of the running business because of my popularity uh, with the media. Uh, and um, after I'd finished doing the run around Australia for our Centenary of Federation, I got a call from John Howard, who was then the Prime Minister, completely out of the blue, and he said to me, Pat, he said, I was really inspired by your journey around Australia and the way you're related to so many Australians from so many backgrounds and so many different cultures and um, the way you inspired them and the way you worked with the mayors in each of the towns that you went through. And uh, he said, he said, look, I don't know what side of politics you're, you're on, but if you would be prepared to run for us at the next election for, for in your local area, he said, I promise you my support to get things done for the people that you represent. And he said, I know that's something that means a lot to you. And I was just blown away that somebody of such high stature would even talk to me, to be honest with you. I was, I was really amazed that, that, you know, he thought that I had a quality within myself. And once again, that sort of, he tapped into that craving that I have to try and be somebody or to make something in my life. Or, and he tapped into the, uh, me wanting to, you know, just wanting that that recognition, and so um, I said yes, and I I, I ran uh, in what was considered back in those days as an unwinnable seat for the the party I represented, and I won, and I was in politics. So, look, I was in politics for um, uh, nine years, uh, and from two thousand one through to two thousand and ten, and I'd um, I'd achieved the position of parliamentary secretary for education, science and training. I was shadow minister for sport and youth during the period of that time. I was federal spokesperson for Western Sydney. So I'd overcome all of these deficits as far as academia was concerned through that. Uh, I'd made these world contacts uh, and I figured I wish I could do more through the world contacts and I felt like there was still something that I needed to do. Uh, And so anyway, um, as, as... history would see you know I, I ended up um, losing pre-selection in my own seat uh, for the 2010 election at the end of the year at the end of that year and so I decided I would I needed to clear my head I needed to do something completely different and the only thing I knew that I was any good at was the running business and I thought but what can I do that nobody's ever done before because people have run around Australia, across Australia, people have run across America, people have done this, people have done that, you know, like it seemed like everything was done. Mm. And then I was looking at a globe of the world in my office and I, and I thought, wow, you know, imagine if one human being could go from the North Pole to the South Pole. Like I think about these journeys that Captain Cook made and Christopher Columbus made and these explorers that sailed around the world and what a big feat it was and what an amazing journey it was. 
and, and how they had done that and how it was recorded in history. And so I yearned to do something for the first time and I couldn't think of anything else. So I come up with, you know, what if I went by foot from one end of the world to the other? And look, obviously there is portions of that where there is huge massive amounts of ocean in between mm. uh, and that was like in the south pole between argentina to between uh terra del fuego and the south pole uh sorry in argentina through to the south pole union glacier where i flew into so for that section i flew across in there so what i did was i said i will run every single day there will be no days off on this journey mm. and i will run a minimum distance and so by doing that, I, I could qualify for it being a continuous run from start to finish. Yeah. So that was the aim. So I, with that in mind, I went about trying to plan this thing. And it was a huge logistical nightmare. Anybody's ever organized a fun run, you know how hard it is to get the SES on board, to get the police on board, to get the local councillors on board or state government on board or officials on board. Imagine trying to do that through 14 different countries from abroad and trying to tell them that you were going to do something that everybody believed was impossible. Uh, and you were the only one that believed it was possible. Uh, but somehow, some way. My enthusiasm ate through, and I think more than anything, people went along with it because they thought he's not going to last, and so, and so he's not even going to make it down to America. So what's it, it's not going to be any harm in saying yes, it. it'll be okay. Yeah. So they said yes, and I got and I met with all the ambassadors, got everybody on board, uh, and then I, I put the funds together. I sold my house, I sold everything I had because I had a sponsor, an American sponsor, pulled out at the last moment. And so I sunk in over a million dollars of my own cash into that wow. event. So I sold my house and sunk that into it. My children were in boarding school at the time. I was a single, I was a single parent. My, my wife had passed away prior to that. Uh, and, um, uh, and I just craved to try and clear the air and do something and breathe again, you know. Mm. So um, I put everything into this and my kids came with me to New York and I trained over there in New York dragging tyres around Central Park, New York in the snow. And in that year, 2010, so December 2010 and January, they had the biggest uh, snowfall that they'd had in a decade there at the time. So there was a lot of snow around. And whilst the kids enjoyed tobogganing in Central Park, I was dragging sled around there all the time. And I had babysitters for them looking after them while I was doing, while I was doing that. And then I'd take them to the zoo in the afternoons and we'd go out to the movies and stuff like that. Um, but I trained there and the Americans thought it was great, you know. They all wanted photos with me and they're going, that guy's going to the North Pole, you know. And they thought it was it was tremendous. Oh, that crazy Aussie, you know. And uh, anyway, so then I uh, continued on on the journey and uh, went up to Canada. The kids came back to school. Uh, and then I, I uh, organised for the Russians to fly me into the North Pole, drop me off by Russian helicopter at the exact North Pole. And for there, together with my team, we dragged sleds out of there through all the way through to Canada, to um, uh, Wardhunt Island. So you've written about this experience. I've got your book here, Pole to Pole. So yeah. if, if the listeners want to uh, get a, a hand on that book, and it's a great read, I recommend it to anyone. So oh, they you. can purchase it from your website. Pat Farmer? Yeah, that can be purchased through there. It's through Alan and Unwin, or you can chase it up through Alan and Unwin, or, but you can find it online. But it's, yeah, um, pole to pole, one man, 20 million steps. And that's basically it, like 20,000 kilometres uh, was beyond 20,000 kilometres the whole journey. 
And if you break that down into one step per one metre, you know, it comes out to 20, 000, uh, 20 million steps. That's so enough. That's... It yeah, it's sounds, enough. <laughs> yeah. It's enough, all right. It sounds awful. When I... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have a drink now. <laughs> when I was reading about it, um, you know, particularly in the North Pole and, you know, you're just crunching through the snow and it was such slow going and then you had the blizzards and when you're in that tent, it was such an early stage of the race too. When you're in that tent, there's blizzards blowing outside and then you're thinking about trying to make it make up for the day that you've lost mm. was it was it was the start of the i mean you like you said you've invested so much in it you sold your house to 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 sponsor your own event mm. were, were there still times that you thought shit what am i doing i can pull out of this i mean it's oh yeah look i could have hit the epurb at any moment and the russians russians for one part of it would have come and picked us up and uh, for the next part of it, once you get past a certain certain degree, then the Canadians take over and they're, they're there for rescue missions. And the Canadians were on alert as well. And they were very supportive, by the way, the Canadian Air Force. Uh, and, but um, I could have hit the EPIRB at any time and quit, but I just, it, it was it was like, it sounds crazy, but I would have rather have died than to quit. And I think that when you really take on something that's truly enormous, as as mad as it sounds, it's the guy that is prepared to lose everything that wins, that wins, mm. you know, and it, 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 it's a shame it has to be that way, but, it, but it's true. If you have a lot to live for, if you have a, a lot of good fortune in your life and everything's fantastic for you out there, it's too easy to go back to those creature comforts of life and everything, but I had everything on the line and I didn't know what I was going to do next and I didn't even know what the sum total of Pat Farmer was and I was keen to discover what was my breaking point and because I was always thinking to myself, well, ever I have the ability to take one more step, I haven't reached my potential yet. And and so even through my darkest moments and as difficult as it was, and I gotta tell you, it was it's hell on earth. It's hell on earth in certain parts of this world. Uh, uh, and it's every bit of torture you can ever possibly imagine. And words can't describe how bad that can be at times. But um uh and only because I was I I was I was open to you know, to pushing myself to the point where I just couldn't pick my body back up again and take another step, was I able to continue to keep pushing on? And it, I don't know, somehow, some way I did it. Look, I I have bad uh, thoughts about that run from time to time and I have wonderful thoughts about it, but I, I it's not the sort of thing that I... It, look, I just... I did it. I did what I had to do, and that was it, and it wasn't easy. And and I just, I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't, you know, it was just something that was just, I just had to, I had to punish myself so much that I could become a human again, I could become, I could become whole again. It's it's a difficult thing to explain. What's what's the bad thoughts that you have now? Like, I would assume that you've, it was such an achievement to, to complete it. How can you look back on that and have bad thoughts? Well, other people on the outside would look at it and go, that's an amazing feat, you know, you should be incredibly proud of it. But 
I look back on it and I just I just think to myself, uh, it's it was it was it was just a difficult 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 thing. It was just every inch that I got, I had to fight for. I had to fight for uh, and. You know, not just in the North Pole and the South Pole, but through Nicaragua, through El Salvador. You know, um, there was there was people that wanted to, you know, wanted to take us as hostages. There was people that were. It was. I, I had army escorts and all sorts of things going on through there. I would finish a day's run in Mexico, and at the end of the 80Ks and stopped to thank the military for helping me. And I'd say to Katie, who was crewing for me, um, you have to hold me, you have to you have to hang on to me, darling. And she'd hold me and I'd just, I'd just faint. Mm. And it was like I just, you know, so many days I just pushed myself as far as I could possibly go. But I got the job done every day and that enabled me then to back up the next day. But... It was amazing. As soon as I crossed the finish line for that day, I realised that there was just nothing left in the tank, just absolutely nothing left in the tank. It was just, 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 not, it was difficult to speak, difficult to just, it was just difficult to exist uh, at the end of that moment for a good hour or two hours afterwards uh, before I could pick myself back up again and just and, and start to think like a human again. And then I'd start writing because I had the deal with the publishers that I had to write a page a day. And I remember one day I was in the North Pole, I was in, my, I was in the tent and i just finished a horrific day and I was in the tent, I was blowing a blizzard outside. And by the way, anybody's ever seen any footage, the only reason why you see footage and it looks beautiful, pristine, summery conditions and I'm just dragging along through the snow is because we couldn't film in the bad weather and yet the bad weather was what I wanted to show everybody the most but it was impossible to try and film in those horrendous conditions but um I would I remember this one day I'm in my sleeping bag and I knew I had this commitment so after my hands after lying in sleeping bag for an hour and this sleeping bag is you know it's it's good up to minus 40 degrees so I've been there and I'd be trying to get some warmth back into my body again, and I'd, then I'd steal my piece of paper inside the sleeping bag, put my head torch on and, and, my, and my pen, and I'd start writing while I was in there. And I started writing and I fell asleep, and I just had a line across the page. I hadn't had anything to eat, and I was just so t- exhausted. There was just a line across the page, and when I woke up, I, I said, oh, that'll do for that day. And then when I got to Canada, um, my crew started typing up my notes and sending them back to the publishers. And they came across this day and they said, what about this day? You know, like there's nothing on this page. And I said, oh, I told them what happened. I said, that line across the page depicts more about how I felt and what I went through that day than any words I could ever write. And they said, nice try, but <laughs> not, nice good try. <laughs> really? not good enough. Not good enough. They said, so So I had, to, I had to recall that day and write that down, you know. So it was, that was, you know, so I was absolutely committed to what I had to do for everybody else on the outside as well because they were also from having the book deal that enabled me to to fund the run a little bit but it cost a lot of money it cost a lot of money and I still you know still don't have a house of my own now 
because um, I'm still clawing back from from that run mm. that finished uh, uh, finished in January 2012. That's incredible. Yeah, incredible. that's amazing. Should we lie the mood regarding that race a bit? Yeah, I, I suppose. Oh yeah, don't mean to be too negative. No, 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 not at all. Sean from Ranella, one of our partners, has told us that we should get about seven eight hundred k's out of a pair of shoes. Yeah. So how many pairs did it take you to get from the north to the south pole? Well, that's fantastic. Seven or eight hundred k's out of a pair of shoes. Mm. Wow. Yeah. In the old days, we used to get that out. Of, we used to definitely get that out of a pair of shoes. But you know, I found that these days. You know, you probably you're lucky if you get 200 k's, and what what will happen is you need to put a, a few a fair amount of k's on them just to break them in. And the reason for that is every pair of shoes that comes into this country uh, is made to suit approximately 10,000 people. So um, they're made. They're also made to stretch into the shape of your foot. So, uh, and it makes sense to have it that way because they can't tailor every pair of shoes for every different runner. And so what happens is you need to wear the shoes in a little bit before they get to the size of your toes and the size of your feet and the the way that you move, Um, and then they feel comfortable after that. So anybody that goes into a race, I don't care if it's a 5K run or whatever it is, that hasn't worn their shoes in, they're crazy. Because uh, you need to wear those shoes in because you get the best out of them when they're worn in. Uh, so that's the first thing for starters. And that's, you know, that's probably close to... Pardon me, probably close to about, um, you know, a good marathon on them anyway. And then, and I do that by just wearing them around the house. Mm. You know, I wear them just walking around the streets, gardening or, you know, whatever I'm doing. And then I'll put them away in the box and then I'll start using them for for training and for races. Um, And and then what happens is, um, you you know, you you do the race. So I went through 14 pairs of shoes on that run, uh, um, on that run, 20,000 kilometres, or 20, you know, closer to 21,000 Ks. Uh, and you find that you'll look at your shoes and you'll start to see these wrinkles in the sides of the shoes and the EVA material there. And that's when you know that the it's not the memory has gone in the EVA and it's not responding as well as it used to. So, look, there's all sorts of different shoes out there at the moment. There's the grid pattern shoes that Sakona use, of course, the, the gels and uh, the Air and um, uh, so many different things at Brooks and Nike. And, you know, everybody's got their system out there and, and all of these systems work. I, you never see me pushing one pair of shoes too much because one of the points I say to everybody is that the shoes that are the best are the shoes that are the best for you, that we're all different strides, we're all different weights, we all strike the ground differently, and so you need to find the shoe that suits you best. Mm. Just so it happens with me, and I've tried so many different shoes and so many different brands, so I could tell you some of the best in each of the brands that that i found. Um, uh but it really comes down to finding the shoe that suits you best. So, yeah, yeah for me, for me, Brooks work well. well that's, that might be a good segue. We'll go to Sean now for our shoe review. Shoe oh, yeah, cool. Oh, yeah, Cronulla yeah. for a sec. Yeah. But thanks to the Running Matters research team for getting me to the Ranella Performance Footwear Shop so quickly. I'm chatting with the owner, Sean the Guru Tyndale. How are you, Guru? Good, Paul. How are you? Good, mate. Back for shoe review number two. Number two. So today we're looking at the Salomon Ultra Pro. So you might want to give us a, a little Yeah, run the Ultra Pro is it's only relatively new to the Salomon range. It's probably it's had a season. We've been very successful with the sell-through of it. Um, sold a lot. The feedback's been very good. I often 
describe it as the V8 of the sense ride. So it's a beefed up, beef, beefed up sense ride. So if you're in the sense ride, um, this is uh, obviously it's about 30 grams heavier. Okay. But it's a little bit um, got a little bit more tech to it. Yep. Um, and a little bit more, bit more strength. If you are a little bit narrow, this is and finding the sense ride a little bit tight through the, the midfoot. Yep. This is the shoe. This is the one. This is the one. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more generous through the midfoot. A little bit of a wider toe. Bit box of a wider there. toe box. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed the uh, the little piggies were wriggling around a little bit more inside the Ultra Pro. Okay. So that was good. That good. Was good. I guess the first thing I noticed was the name. So Ultra Pro, if that doesn't inspire you to bigger and better things, I don't know exactly. what's going to. Yeah. And second thing I noticed was thank you, Salomon, for putting the uh, the patented Norg orange into the new shoe. So they are... That was the first colour that came out. Yeah, it was a bit out there, <laughs> but it was very popular. Um, of course it was. But the second series of the shoe is a bit, little bit more sedate. Okay. Bit, so, yeah, one so colour. Possibly wear that with the a single colour. maybe, yeah? Possibly, yeah. All right, Go, Yeah. That was my only complaint about the shoe, is they were a bit leery to wear with the jeans, a bit of sneezing getting around town. Yep. But uh, no, apart from that, magic, mate. You've um, you been running in the shoe? Yeah, I've had five runs, did 30Ks on Sunday in them and uh, pulled up beautifully. Nice support towards the end of 30Ks I found. I'm not a big pronator, but I found that they just gave me that little bit as I got fatigued. Yeah, that's so. good. Yeah, it's quite stiff. It's a little bit stiff, but it's still got a little bit of give to give you that little bit of support, okay. which is a good thing, I think. Yeah. What, what do they weigh in at, Sean? 300 grams. Okay, so still reasonably light. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that they'd be a pretty reasonable racing shoe at that weight and the support that I was getting, um, nice and stable on the trails. So, yeah, yeah, very yeah good. I mean, it's not as cushioned. Yep. As some of the others, um, Solomon are now for their sort of their, that cushioned midsole, mm. but um, for me, it's a good shorter option. Yep. Um, and then obviously for my long runs, that's my option. I'll go for a bit more cushioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I'll do the same with the Sense Ride, but still a Salomon shoe. So one of the the cool little things about this one, the Ultra Pro, was these two little wings on each side of the shoe that give your foot a nice supportive hug um, through the run. And I, I don't mean a a tight sort of pissy auntie at Christmas hug. I mean, like <laughs> the end of a 100K ultra celebratory man hug. It was that's, just a really it's comfy good. Feeling. And that's good. It holds the foot nice and strong yep. um, in the shoe. And obviously with the uh, Solomon Quick Lace system, uh, it's obviously it's really quick. It's stronger. It's four times quicker than... Lacing them up. Any normal shoe. Yeah, uh, shoe lace. So, yeah. Yeah, I love the uh, the nylon sort of quick pull system on the Salomons. I don't understand why other people haven't gone there, other shoe brands, but no, it's magic. It yeah. is, yeah. And obviously it's got a nice little garage for the excess. Yeah, the sneaky little pocket there. Pocket at the top of the tongue that just sits that nice and uh, away and uh, nice and neat. Yeah, so, perfect. I, I, I'm a big bandit for uh, losing shoelaces on a run, so you can't be done in these ones. No, perfect. Excellent. Yeah, and I've never, I've never actually seen one of these break. Okay, never oh, had it. To know. Yeah. yeah, no, I've never seen it either in all my Salomon running years. So, anyway, mate, I was a big, big fan of the Salomon Ultra Pro. How did um, you find the grip? Spectacular. No, yeah, nice and um, aggressive, I guess. Typical of the Salomon <clears throat> shoes. I don't think I'll be on the dance floor with them, but on no. the trails in yeah. the mud, they performed really well. They've got that nice. It's got. It's an outer sole. Conti grip, yep. so nice and very durable. The feedback that we've had from a lot of customers have come back, they're getting 900 to 1,000 Ks Is that right? out of the shoe, and it's still 
Not wearing the lugs not down wearing, too much? Not wearing the lugs, yeah. Okay. Well, no, I, I found them perfect on the trails, and I think they'll go well down at the Surf Coast Century, actually, on the sand. They'll, they'll, Looking yeah, forward to your feedback, bite yeah. into that pretty well. Yeah. So, yeah, spot on. Anything else there, Sean? Mate, I just I think it's a winner. Yeah. I really do. I um, as I said, for people that are in Solomon's shoes in the sense ride, um, I think it's easy transition straight through. It's still it's built on an eight mil drop. Yep. Um, and as I said, it's, uh, I call it the V eight okay. sense ride. I think it's a nice high performance shoe for a Salomon. It's perfect, yeah. mate. I'd uh, encourage everyone to get down to Ranulla down in the mall, Cronulla. And uh, have a look at the, the Salomon range, but particularly the Ultra Pro. And uh, I don't think you'd be disappointed. All right, Matty, better beam me back to Pat Farmer. See you, mate. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Paul. And we're back. Thanks for that running shoe review, Sean, at <laughs> Renoa. That was, that was good timing. <laughs> Should I chuck a listener question in there now? Please do. We, we get a couple of listener questions, Pat. So, pretty lighthearted stuff. So, this one's from the florist. So... As a runner who frequently needs a mid-run nature stop, I'm interested to know how your body <laughs> body coped with the food during the Spirit of India run. Yeah, well, let me just say, let me just say, everybody gets the runs in India. <laughs> and, uh, everybody, it doesn't matter how hard you try to avoid it, everybody does. But I was pretty particular. One, one of the things I did was I would have stuff like watermelon. Um, and I would make sure that my crew had to cut it up, had to cut it up in front of my eyes. I'd have uh, I'd have coconut water because uh, it was fresh from coconuts or, or fresh out of a carton. So I made sure everything was sealed. So I had to be pretty careful with all of that. But uh, yeah, still got you, didn't it? Still, still get you. You can't avoid it. Hey, um, I was, I was, and they put spices in absolutely everything. Absolutely. I keep saying them. I don't want spices. You know, I don't want spices in anything. Spicy I just watermelon. want simple, normal food. But they, but they, uh, you know, a lot of the times they don't know what uh, spaghetti is. That's for sure. <laughs> you can't get simple things. Can nah. you? Okay. Is that, uh, you go. I got one more. That's all. One more listener question. This one's from the Honourable John Howard. Funnily enough, seriously, yeah, amazing. So. Uh, tell me what the tougher gig is, Pat, dragging a canoe across the Arctic or dealing with the Liberal Party room? Oh, absolutely dealing with the party room. <laughs> well, he would tell you himself, if that is from him, he would tell you himself. The amount of times I, I'd stand up and join party room meetings, so every Tuesday what happens is it's like question time uh, for the backbenchers to be able to have question time with the ministers and you're able to stand up there and you have a, a red hot crack at the ministers about something that you, you didn't like or you weren't happy with and he would tell you, you know, quite rightly, um, even though... You know, even though I have, I had, did have, and always will have the greatest respect for John Howard. There was a lot of times when I held him to account, and I'd say to him, "You know, you got me into this business. You said you'd support me to try to help the people to get things done for my area." And and so I just remind him of that, and he always did. He always came good, but I I, I honestly sometimes a little bit brash, and I would remind him from time to time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, look, it's a tough gig politics because. You know, you have to be able to bend like a willow. You've got to be able to sway with sway with the decisions, and you don't always get your own way. Whereas, some as an athlete, you can be dogged and determined. And if you're fiercely competitive and you never give up on your goal, and you just keep pushing and pushing, which is some of the qualities in politics as well. Um, but if you do that as an athlete, you're going to you're not only going to survive, but you're going to win. Whereas in politics, there are some forces that you just simply don't have control over. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I get the running part, but the politics, I don't, I don't get why. Why? I mean, you you wanted to influence. You, you, oh, look, you I think an opportunity for. Uh, look, I think inside every inside every good person is this desire to make things better, uh, and. You know, through the media, we always hear the negativity uh, about politicians and we always hear the negative, what they're doing wrong, what they've done wrong and, and, you know, all the problems. But we don't hear enough about the good stuff that they do and how they transform people's lives and they change them. And, you know, and I stood up for uh, a number of immigration cases. I stood up for a number of uh, sick and elderly people that were having problems with the health system and all the rest of it, but you will never, those things never make the headlines or the papers, but it doesn't matter if they do or not, because what matters is that you made a difference yeah. to those people's lives. And John will tell you and so many other people on all sides of politics, so, so that, that, you know, I'm saying this right across the board, um, that's what you get out of it, that success of being able to help people. And that's why I'm doing the Love Mercy run across Uganda later on this year, and that's why I'm doing the, the Quicksand Soft Sand run, for once again, for Love Mercy, and I've helped Father Chris Riley's Youth Off the Streets and the Red Cross and Lifeline and all the rest of it because I need to feel that my life is worthwhile, that I'm doing something that's contributing to this planet and contributing to the lives of other people. And I've been given this God-given gift to be able to run uh, further the most people on this planet, in some cases faster over those further distances than than most people on this planet. And so because I can do that, I feel like it's my responsibility to use that to give back. Yeah. Can um, I just ask a question about that? So over the years you have raised an enormous amount of money and awareness for some really worthy causes, Pat. Do, do you think Australians in general do enough for those less fortunate than themselves? Oh, heck, no, heck yeah, they do. Hey, Look, absolutely I believe that because... I've seen the kindness that comes from Australian people and I think there's too much of an emphasis on the negative few that don't give or the negative few that don't want to help out or complain that we're we're helping people overseas and we're not helping people back here or I haven't got this or I haven't got that. Honestly, most people, you guys included, and you know as well because you guys have supported charities as well, there's a lot of bloody good people here in Australia and even when they've got hardly anything, they'll still give you the shirt off their back. Mm. They'll put their hand in in their pockets and they'll find some money for the salvos or they'll find some money to buy a ticket in a meat tray for a worthwhile cause or they'll do this or they'll buy a raffle ticket for this or that. And, And look, we don't have to raise millions of dollars to prove this point. It goes back to the old story in the Bible about the lady that walked into walked into the synagogue and she just put a, a put a couple of coins into the box and that was all she had. That was everything she had. Australians do that all the time. They haven't got much, but if they haven't got any money, they'll walk them into their home. They'll say, "Sleep the night on our lounge," or "Or here's some food or whatever." And I've experienced this myself. Mm. Now I, I won't I won't hear of it. The media want to talk down. Uh, want to talk up the negativity and talk down the uh, milk of human kindness but I'm telling you it's there and it's alive in Australia and sometimes we get a little bit dull because people do try and rot the system with it all but basically everybody's supporting somebody in some way in this country and I'm very proud to say I'm Australian for that reason yeah I agree with that that's great that's great that's good Mm. All right, can we talk about running now? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we digress. Bobby Fickle, 
Bobby's a great runner. I love Bobby and because Bobby's from the old Sydney to Melbourne days and the 24-hour races, the six-day races, the 48-hour races, the you name it. He's a legend. Big he's fan a, of the he's a great show, guy. Bobby. And he's still running well. Yeah. He's a fan of the show. Uh, he said to say hi. I was chatting to him after the Sabo to Surf. Bobby, I want you to run in the quicksand run. I want you to do a marathon because after my run this morning, I don't think – too many people are capable of doing a marathon Ooh. in soft sand, but I think you are. Well, we could do it. Tell us more about the uh, soft sand marathon. When's it start? How do people enter? Starts three o'clock in the afternoon. It's called Quicksand Australia, and I've called it Quicksand Australia instead of Pat Farmer's Quicksand Run, as it used to be known, because I want to take it Australia wide. Uh, and uh, it's a run along the beach uh, in the soft sand, so not in the hard sand, in the soft sand at Maroubra Beach. It kicks off 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the 28th of September. There's a 5-kilometre run for the mums and dads and kids and anybody that wants to just try it out. There's a 5K run, then there's a 10K run, there's a half marathon, a marathon and a marathon's team in it. And for the individuals to do a marathon on soft sand, i got to tell you, like it, it, it's destructive and painful and brutal uh, and you know, where, where I can't. Do I sign up? Yeah, <laughs> that's. I know that appeals to so many of your listeners. <laughs> I think I'm away that week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny though, isn't it? Like you look at these races all around the world. Everybody wants to do the toughest marathon yeah, on earth. They all want to build as the toughest marathon on earth. Well, I'm telling you, unless you've run a marathon soft sand, you have not run in the toughest marathon on earth. So that's go. my challenge. 27th September, did you say? What I say there. Um, uh, Saturday, I think it's the 28th of September, isn't it? Saturday 28th. Saturday 28th, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Maroubra Beach. We might put a team Well, put a team together. Yeah, team and, and, you know, because I see these pretty boys on uh, on, uh, yeah, the, you, on the Bondi. Oh, no, I see the pretty boys on the Bondi on the Bondi Surf Lifesaving Show, yeah. and they're, 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 they're good for the cameras, and they're good for paddling out and rescuing uh, people in distress, but let's see how, how well they can run. I reckon you guys could cook them. Oh, mate. We've got a 100k race down in Victoria the week before. So we Perfect. Might be, Good uh, training for it. Good recovery run. Yeah, right? I reckon yeah. absolutely what you need. <laughs> <laughs> there is no excuses. You know that. Yeah, Once yeah. again, we're talking to the wrong bloke. <laughs> yeah, yeah you've got a week in between to recover. What more do you want? All right, you heard it's it not here. like it was yesterday. Well, you heard it here first. We're going to continue. <laughs> there we we're go. going to get myself a tub of ice cream and a bottle of Kahlua. <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have that ready yeah. for you. I'm going to have 27 beers. <laughs> okay. During the I'm hold you two to that. Yeah. We'll make it real interesting for and, everyone. And then we'll do a podcast. Well, I'm glad you knew Bobby because he said to say good day. He's I... fantastic, Bob. Yeah, I've got the utmost respect for him. And all, all the Bobby, all, all the Bushies runners, all the Bushy runners. And I, of course, everybody that ran the Sutherland to Surf today, too. Fantastic, fantastic performance. Yeah. That's good. So I wanted to ask you about uh, another unusual event that you did back in 87, which was the Long Bay Jail Run. <laughs> Whoa, you really did do your history, hey? You've got a big research team, Pat. Wow, you guys are incredible. Is there anything that you don't know? That's well, amazing. Well, I meant to get bribes off you earlier. <laughs> well, yeah, well, let me tell you about that. Okay, so um, what happened was... Uh, I got called up by the Westfield officials and they said, they said, there's this guy that's organised this run inside Long Bay Jail and, and the run is to aid this young girl and her family 
to be able to go over to Europe for a life-saving operation. And he said, we need you guys to go in there and help them because they're not really runners to go in there and help them to run this, this race and, uh, and uh, you know, mentor them a little bit and help them through it. Would you, would you be prepared to do it? He said, it'd be good. You know, it's good publicity and appreciate you doing it if you would. Uh, it was John Dangle was the guy in charge of Westfield at that point in time. And, and I said, yeah, sure, count me in. So they got myself, uh, I remember, I think, I'm not sure if Murray Taylor did or not, but I know Mark Labwell did and, 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 um, um, Mansell, um, uh, jeebus. Anyway, um, he'll hate me for not remembering his first name, but, um, uh, anyway, we all we all went in there, and I was surprised. You know, we showed up there in the morning in the prison, and and um, they had a smorgasbord of fruit salads and everything laid on. And this one guy came over to us, and he was as white as a barn door. And he said to me, he said, "I'm," he said, "I'm," you know, I was a white collar worker and I was an accountant. I'm in here for embezzlement. And he said, I was listening to the radio one day and they're talking about this poor little girl. And he said, I was in there doing a little bit of work for the for the um, uh, for the head of the jail. And he said, um, he said, I just jumped on the phone straight away. He said, uh, I jumped on the phone straight away and said that the prisoners would like to help out and the media thought that was such a great story and that they went from there. The th- funny thing was he didn't run it by the prison wardens or anybody else prior <laughs> to all of that. So, so, yeah, so they found out about it from the media. Oh, really? <laughs> so it was, it was quite interesting. It was a bit of a character, this guy, but... You know, he used all his skills to get the sponsorship together and everything. They raised the funds for this little girl, and we went in this race. And it was a thousand mile relay race inside the jail. And I remember, uh, sorry, Kevin Mansell, Kevin, please forgive me for um, not remembering uh, your name earlier on. I'm just getting old. Sorry, buddy. Uh, and um, Kevin and, and Mark and I, uh, said, there's no way in the world they're going to do a thousand miles inside the jail. And they said, well, that's why we need you guys, uh, you know, because your accumulative distances will help as well. And we've gone, jeez, we can't even do that either. But anyway, we'll see how we go. So it was interesting because we got in there and it was quite an experience. Within the first five minutes, I had um, half a dozen prisoners trying to schmooze my shoes off me, you know. <laughs> hey, what are you doing with your shoes when you finish here? Any chance, you know, can I get your shoes off me? Talk about cons in that place. But it was a, it was a, a quite an experience for us. We, we did the run around there. And basically they had two bins and you took a, a paddle pop sticks and uh, you would drop it from, pick it up, uh, and drop it in the bin a little bit further down. And when all of the paddle pop sticks were done, the thousand miles was done. Uh, just okay, between timing, just man. between us, boys, just between us, let me tell you, we were running around there, and uh, as it got down towards the end of the day, some of the prisoners <laughs> were going, you know what, I've had enough, can I say this, yeah. I've had enough of this shit, you know, I've had enough of this shit, when's the barbecue on? <laughs> and, they, and, and Bobby's going, Bobby's saying, oh, it's all right, it's okay, you know, just hang in there, hang in there, you know, we're, we're getting it, we're getting there, we're getting there. And so I... I 
I've heard tales, I'm not going to say outright, I've heard tales that some of them put more than one pedal pop stick in the bin at speed a up, time. But I wasn't going to put them in, that's for sure. Yeah. So uh, anyway. Because you're so, running around a soccer oval? Yeah, we're running around the soccer oval there. So we got the 1,000 miles done by lunchtime. We had a barbecue, <laughs> raised the money, the little girl went off over to Europe and everybody's happy. So. Win, win, win. You raised 30 grand. That's why I was surprised yeah. when you brought that story. Yeah. Well, 30 grand in those days was a lot of money. Yeah, that, that was a lot of money. It was enough to fly a family over to Europe and back and for her treatment. Fantastic. Well, there's another race we wanted to talk about, wasn't there? There's another event I wanted to talk about, and that's the uh, six-day ultra track race at Colac in Victoria. Oh, Colac, yeah. yeah. Made famous by Cliff Young because um, uh, Cliffy came from Colac and the the people down there in Colac wanted to have their own race Um basically to celebrate Cliffy. And in the early uh, 19th century, 1,000-mile uh, races, uh, six-day track races, they were big events. And that, what they would do, they used to have them around the village square. And these runners would come from all over the provinces and then come and compete in these races. And they would run for weeks around around these places and, you know, win a king's ransom as a result of it. But... Uh, provide entertainment for everybody else as well. So with that in mind, the, those events started to get rekindled by Sri Shimoy um, with the Sri Shimoy race in, Hong, in um, New York, yeah. in um, Central Park, New yeah, York. The transcendence. Yeah, yeah, that's 30, it. Yeah, 4,000. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it started to get rekindled with all of that and then there started to be an interest around the world about doing, you know, 1,000-mile races and six-day races and these endurance races again. And they had La Rochelle in France where they had uh, they had indi- indoor six-day races that Tony Rafferty and uh, Ziggy Bauer and Joe Record used to compete in. Uh, and so, um, you know, they were great events. Uh, so anyway, uh, the people at Colac decided to put on the six-day race down there. And I remember Joe Record winning it one year with 900... Uh, he ran 900 kilometres in the six days, so... They were the sorts of distances that people were punching out. So one one of the events that you did down there, you end up doing seven hundred and forty kilometres and you finished tenth. But uh, there's yeah. some drunken louts that turned up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There was. Yeah, there was, and they'd been out for a shooting weekend. And I apologise to all of those people that are vegetarians and different things, but they'd been shooting for the weekend and they started throwing dead rabbits at the runners. Uh, at the runners as we were running around the track. So, I mean, you know, I'm surprised that uh, all of this, you know, these questions are bringing all this back to me, but it was uh, it was an unusual night that night. The police come along and locked up those, those guys that were pretty drunk and uh, took them away and the race went on as usual. But it was pretty horrific for people like Sandra Barwick from New Zealand who was an animal lover and she couldn't understand that sort of behaviour. It was just Australian yobbos at, at their, you know, at their worst. But, you know, those sorts of things happened. We didn't think anything of it. A lot, a lot of us didn't think anything of it. Jump but, over um, the dead rabbit and keep running. Yeah, you just keep running. I was used to jumping over kangaroo carcasses <laughs> and dead pigs and dead emus from running around <laughs> so Australia. So nothing. Yeah, it was easy. It was, <laughs> it was no trouble at all. <laughs> so, I, I believe one of the one of the louts was uh, he had a cigarette and he was trying to burn people when they run past, and then his mates turned on him and stripped him naked and tied him up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember. Yeah, I remember a naked guy running across the middle of the track and, and um, being chased by these guys. So, uh, um, 
so that was I didn't know how that how that started or whatever because you know you run around this track and the track was a it was almost a kilometre around I think it might have been a kilometre around uh, and you know so you'd be you'd be on the other side of the track it'd be a fair fair bit of time before you'd get around to the other side and see what was happening on over there and this and that but you know we had all our tents around the outside of the track and they were just different days, you know, all of those things. There were different days all around. Yeah, the the world's changed and moved on yeah. since those days and things that were just funny in those days are inappropriate, absolutely inappropriate mm-hmm. and lockable, lock-upable offences these days. But there were, it was a time of larrikins and a time of uh, unusual um, types of people. And uh, but But they all came into this melting pot together and... Uh, made life interesting and made these events interesting and different things so you know it was it was a great thing on the, on the running calendar the Colac six day race yeah so before we just go off that topic one of the guys ended up walking in front of a car that night and getting do you remember him getting hit by a car and no i don't remember that yeah i so don't remember that i read about that it. so one of the guys one of the drunks there that night that probably got locked up well that him. may have even been in one of the six-day races that i wasn't in because i didn't i didn't attend all of them i'd been in there a few times but i remember running in that race and getting back to more to the running side of that was um I was going through a, a pretty difficult time and um, Patrick Mackey, who was from the UK and he was then the world champion, uh, uh, at that point in time, he held the, the record for um, 100 kilometres and a number of other different distances, Patrick Mackey. And um, Patrick, I was running around, I was having a hell of a time. We're into about day four or whatever, and it was the night time. You know, it was like 2 a.m. in the morning, going through that death zone time, uh, and I was really struggling. And Patrick Mackey was running around, and he came around to me, and he slowed down to run beside me, and he said, Pat, he said, I know that you're going through a world of pain at this point in time, but he said, I want to tell you this much. He said... This is just the blink of an eye in the course of your whole life. Mm. He said, you may think that six days is a long time to be running around a track, but he said, you will look back on this moment and you'll only remember a blink of what, what it was all about. And, and that will only be one blink in the whole of your life. And he said, so you've got to see it like that and look beyond this moment. And so with that in mind, um, you know, he pepped me up enough to, to keep going. And he was absolutely right. It was a great bit of advice. And from time to time during the course of my running career, great people have left me with these wonderful things to think about. Uh, and w- it doesn't matter whether you're doing a marathon and you hit the wall or whatever distance that you're doing, if you can look beyond that moment and understand that it will all be over and you'll be able to reflect on that moment. And when you reflect on it, you don't want to see yourself as a quitter. You don't want to see yourself as somebody who, like, we, we're not always going to win every race. So it's not about winning, it's about finishing. And I remember Cliff Young saying to me in the early days, he said, Pat, in order to win a race, you have to finish a race. It seems like just simple common sense. But so often I see world champions and great athletes in triathlons and swimming and running and different events, and they'll come out there with all the all the credentials in the world, and they'll be struggling a bit, and they go, oh, you know, I've got a sore leg or, you know, I've got this injury. And, they, and rather than push on and finish the event and fall a couple of slides down the ladder, they just, they just quit. And they get out of it. Now, that makes monetary sense as far as their sponsors are concerned. But 
in the whole scheme of things, this life is about finishing what you start. And it's one of the, it, you know, I take a purest attitude towards running. And for me, first and foremost is finishing every single thing that you start. And then if you can win a race, well, it's just icing on the cake. But it's about that. And if more people had that attitude, we'd see more more Stephen Bradbury stories, more success stories, more, more um, um, not just Stephen Bradbury stories, but more um, uh, Andrew... Um, Andy Lloyd. More Andy Lloyd stories out there, you know, because they were in a position to be able to capitalise on somebody else's difficulties or somebody else's misfortune and you guys would know as well as me and of course all of your listeners when you're running in a race and you're running beside somebody and you're listening to their breathing and they're huffing and puffing you're huffing and puffing and it's going through your head I don't know how long I can keep this pace up for I don't know how long I can sit with this person well you need to remind yourself that they're going through exactly the same thing and if you just hang in there for just one more step or two more steps they may be the one that quits before you do Mm. Great advice. Yeah. I love that. So, look, you've we've sort of summarised your career and it's been amazing and you've overcome a lot of adversity. In 88, your your wife, Lisa, passed away. I can't imagine what you, you went through because your children were so young, Dylan and Brooke. Yeah, Dylan uh, was 10 months and Brooke was two, yeah. Yeah. Um, did that... That you, you must have questioned everything, your faith, you know, your running. Can you can you give us any idea of what you went through to, to be well, where you're at now? Well, you do. Yeah, you do question everything, and I still do, and I still do. But the point is, um, like I said about the politics, there's some things that you have no control over whatsoever, and you just have to roll with the punches. And I was lucky because I had Brooke and Dylan in my life that I had to, I had to step up to the plate to be both mum and dad for them. Um, otherwise, if it was just up to me, if it was just Lisa and I and it happened, you know, it would be so easy for me to have gone off the rails. But um, because I have Brooke and Dylan in my life, instead of taking a negative look at, at life and thinking, oh, woe is me, how difficult is all of this, you know, how bad is this, what's happened, I thought to myself, how lucky am I to have had somebody so beautiful in my life and, and to be left with the gift of these two beautiful kids and to be and 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 a constant reminder of our love for each other, and and just to have that to have that uh, was such a, a strengthening thing and such a positive in my life. But I remember, you know, I remember at the time there was a stage for about a week where, you know, Channel Nine was parked out front of my house. They wanted a they wanted a story from me. They wanted to, a comment from me and. Last people I felt like talking to was the media, mm. um, you know. And the thing about the media is they're like vultures. Sometimes I'm not saying they all are, but they love a, They love it when you cry on TV, and they love a story, and they love all that sort of stuff. But that's you know, it's just the nature of the beast, and in in all forms of the media. So it is what it is. But I remember. Um, not wanting to go outside of the house. So for about a week, I was just walking from one room to the next room and just in my still in my dressing gown and my pyjamas and my slippers and 
friends would come over. I had a beautiful friend, uh, uh, Ken Schaefer, who used to bring over chicken soup to me because he realised that I, I wasn't much of a cook but and he wanted to make sure the kids at least got something decent. So he would bring over this chicken soup in a big thing that would last for a couple of days. And next-door neighbours were Chinese market gardeners and they'd bring over these big boxes of bok choy and everybody was just so kind to us. But um, I was feeling a little bit sorry for myself and I went up to the post box this one day to check the mail and there's a whole lot of mail in there. And I was going through there. At the time, we sponsored, we were sponsoring two kids on the World Vision program and there was this little Jacqueline Labatu. And I remember I got this letter from World Vision and it said, oh, Patrick and Lisa, uh, you may have realised, you may have seen in the media that Jacqueline's village has been hit by terrorists uh, um, uh, against the government and... Uh, a lot of the people in the village have been shot dead and killed. I just, we just want to reassure you that Jacqueline is still alive and she's well, and we, and she really needs your help now more than ever. And I remember, I remember reading that and thinking to myself, what am I feeling sorry about? You know, here's this little girl. She's only seven years old, and she's had to endure all of this. And she's got to get on with her life. And yet I've got two beautiful children, a beautiful home, good friends around me. And I've had the pleasure of having a wonderful wife for the period of time that I did have. And Lisa and I were teenage, uh, um, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend for a long time as well. I'd known Lisa for nine years before we actually got married. So we'd had a fair bit of time together. Uh, and so instead of feeling negative about the whole situation, I, I looked at the positive uh, and I decided I needed to have a shave, have a shower, get dressed and go out there and face the world. And that's exactly what I did from that point on. It's commendable. It's amazing. Yeah. Hmm. Pat, thank you for sharing your story. It's been amazing uh, chat. Hattie, I'm sure you've enjoyed oh, the... I'm inspired. I'm inspired too, yeah. yeah so <laughs> Great chat. Thank um, you. Well, listen, listen before before I go, please uh, um, check out Katie Visco. Uh, uh, she's some little American girl with a husband out there. He's riding a bike and supporting her, and she's she's running down through the centre of Australia. Uh, they're at Pine Creek today, and they'll be on into uh, Catherine in a couple of days' time, and then heading on down through from there to Alice Springs and beyond. Uh, and um, so check out their website, katievisco.com, and try and give them all the love and support that we would expect if we were overseas running. Okay. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get the, her details and then I'll post it on our socials. Thanks, and, I appreciate that. Yeah, put people in contact with her. So cool. That's good. Well, next time we chat, you'll be in Uganda then, I think, Pat. Yeah, yeah, and I look yeah. forward to um, giving you some messages from back there. Yeah. yeah. Some, and I'll, I'll just leave you with that thought. You haven't got to run faster than the lion. you just got to run faster than the guy you're with. And that's why I want a couple of, <laughs> couple of corporates to come along as well, as I know I can't outrun Monaghetti and I certainly can't outrun Julius, but I think I got the wood on uh, on uh, John Wiley. <laughs> yeah, it like he knows, needs to find another runner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he needs to find someone slower than him with bigger pockets. <laughs> <laughs> the weakest link. All right, well, well, thanks again, Pat. My um, pleasure. And also, we, we, we'll look at doing the, the Quicksand Australia run as well. So Fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure. Thanks. See you guys.